You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We are transitioning into uh, a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So we have been uh, with the Minor Prophets for the past 12, 13 weeks or so. Um, and, and now we're coming out of that. Moving into the Sermon on the Mount, we're probably going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through the end of October. Um, and then as we move into November, I shared with you last week that I've asked our um, other elders to uh, take the month of November uh, and to preach through Matthew chapter 6. So I'm excited to uh, just be able to come and participate on Sunday, but not have the burden and responsibility of teaching during that month, and, and thankful to be able to sit under uh, the teaching of our other elders. So excited about that opportunity coming up, and then we'll wrap up with Matthew chapter 7, uh, which will take us through the end of this year, up until the start of uh, the first of next year, and, and then Lord willing, we'll be um, moving into the book of Ephesians. And so really excited about what God uh, is wanting to teach us over the coming months. I know uh, I've shared multiple times how impactful the uh, time in the minor prophets has been for me. I feel like um, all of our teaching times here at Sovereign Hope uh, are, are really just reflections of how God is teaching me and instructing me and um, things that I'm learning. But particularly, and maybe because it's just fresh in my mind right now, particularly with the minor prophets, I feel like God is just really um, causing me to ponder and meditate upon his word throughout the week. And I see it being so applicable in, in the ways that I'm interacting with people uh, at work, at home, the ways that I'm interacting with my family, with coworkers. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited that while we're coming out of the Minor Prophets, we're not moving completely away from uh, the themes and the teachings of what we've been seeing, because I told you that part of the reason I wanted to go to the Sermon on the Mount is I believe that it's giving us further clarity on some of the things that we've already been seeing in the Minor Prophets, particularly in how, in, in how to live some of this out on a daily basis. Um, so while we're saying goodbye to the Minor Prophets from a textual standpoint, I don't see us saying goodbye to the overall themes um, because I believe we're going to pick up and continue with some of that here uh, in the book of Matthew, particularly as we get started with chapter 5. So I want to read to you our text today where we're going to be uh, to start off our study. Uh, we're going to go through um, verse 12 this morning, particularly looking at uh, what's commonly called the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. It says in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. <coughs> Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. <coughs> it's that section right there at the very end that kind of got me thinking in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. Because I, I felt like I was more aware of, of what he would even mean by the prophets based on our study of the minor prophets, right? And so we saw the message of the prophets. We saw how they were challenging uh, the people to uh, stop living certain ways, to start living certain ways. Um, and then we also saw the treatment of, of how people uh, either did or didn't respond to the prophets, right? So what we see here is Jesus saying, look, as you seek to live these things out that I'm telling you, you're going to be mistreated at times. You're going to be persecuted at times. Um, but that's okay because what we see is that that's the pattern of people who follow God's way, right? And so he references back to uh, the prophets and how they were treated for living out some of these things and calling the people to live out some of these things. All right, our summary sentence for today. <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount gives us greater clarity about how to walk humbly show intentional kindness, and do what is right in the face of persecution by challenging us to examine our hearts as we evaluate our outward actions. The Sermon on the Mount gives us greater clarity about how to walk humbly, show intentional kindness, and do what is right in the face of persecution by challenging us to examine our hearts as we evaluate our outward actions. 
for our kids, obedience to Jesus is more than just outward obedience as it involves our hearts being right too. All right, so what we see, and we're going to see this through the course of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is um, Jesus really trying to draw the people's attention to their heart condition as much as they're looking to the outward condition of their actions, right? And so we see some discussion about the law in this passage, and kind of overall, the way that Matthew kind of frames up this sermon is that, is it has a feel um, of, of Exodus where Moses is having the law delivered to him, right? And so you've got the parallels here where um, Moses is up on a mountain and receiving the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes up on the mountain to, uh, to give this teaching, right? Even the flow of these Beatitudes, the, the first section really focusing on um, our relationship and our perspective about uh, how we relate to God, and then kind of following it up with how we relate to each other. You see that in the Ten Commandments too, right, with the discussion about um, the, the gods that we worship, the ways that we worship God, uh, our response to God, and then it, it kind of tails into how we interact with each other, right? And so um, Jesus' big, big purpose, though, is to help us see uh, again, that heart condition over just the outward conformity, just the outward action. It's also interesting because, you know, we're coming out of our study of John prior to Minor Prophets. Um, there's obviously some differences in the Gospel of Matthew. We didn't look at this teaching specifically in the Gospel of John because he doesn't include it there. Um, but this is early in Jesus's ministry, right? And so he's prior to this chapter four, calling some of his disciples, really kind of starting his ministry. Uh, but think about this. Jesus is going to identify himself as the Son of God. He is going to identify very closely with God, right? He's going to claim to be God. Um, He gives these hard teachings, these hard instructions, sets this high standard for living right here at the very beginning of his ministry, which means he's going to be evaluated by this as he lives out his earthly life in front of these people, right? And so as as he steps into this ministry, he's really set the standard really high for how people are going to evaluate his truthfulness, his effectiveness, right? Like, if you're going to call us to live this way, you best be, you best be uh, showing us what that looks like, right? And so as he teaches them, this is what uh, following God looks like. These are the standards that I'm, I'm calling you to. Burden now is on him to live that out perfectly if he's going to claim to be perfect, right? It's like when you have a, a coaching change in athletics and you have a press conference and the new coach kind of comes forward and is kind of talking about the, the program and him taking over um, as a fan. Like you're wanting, you're wanting your coach to convince you that things are going to be different now, right? Like you're going you're gonna to turn the tide and we're going to win championships. Most coaches step into that press conference and they, kinda, they try to temper expectations, right? Like we're, we're rebuilding, like we've got a process, trust the process, yada, yada, yada. You get some of those guys in there, right, from the very get-go, they're like, I'm here to win championships, right? Like, we're, we're going to win, and we're going to win now. And as a fan, you're like, yes, right? But coaches get fired for those press conferences <laughs> because if they don't produce championships quick, everybody's like, well, you're a failure because you came in singing this song that, that we're going to be successful, and we're going to win now, right? And so it's a bold move to step into that first press conference and say, here's what you can expect. You can expect championships now, right? Because now the media will evaluate very quickly how your team performs, it's similar to what Jesus does here. He steps in from the very get-go with his ministry, right, and says, this is what it looks like to be perfect. This is what it looks like to follow God appropriately. This is what it looks like to have your heart match your, your outward actions, right? And now he's kind of put his life on display and says, evaluate me based on what I've just said. Evaluate me in my life and see that I'm going to live this out and show you exactly what it looks like, all right? Why are we teaching this? I told you that Matthew has a great concern in his gospel, and, and Lord willing, down the road, we'll, we'll come back to this and, and go through it verse by verse. But Matthew has a concern for showing the continuity between the Old Testament and following Christ. All right, so he, he, throughout his gospel, is constantly referencing back the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the prophets and what they had to say. We see here that early reference in Matthew 5 that uh, if you're being treated this way, hey, take comfort because the prophets were treated this way. You look down into verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So part of my motivation for coming from minor prophets to the Sermon on the Mount is I do believe it's going to give us further clarity 
on how to live out some of the things that we've already seen in the Minor Prophets. Hopefully, like you kind of even picked up on in our summary sentence, the, the reference back to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, right? The, the idea of walking humbly, showing kindness, doing justice, right? We define justice as being this mindset of doing what's right and, and then correcting wrong, right? And so what I want us to see is that some of those themes, if God requires it in the Old Testament, we would expect that he would require it in the New Testament, right? What does God require of you? For you to do these things, to walk humbly, to do justice, to show kindness, Well, we would expect to see that here in the New Testament, and we certainly do as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is an extremely popular passage. Think about this. What we're going to see throughout these next three chapters are popular scriptures that are even popular amongst lost people, right? Um, And I I think it's a fulfillment of what Jesus says later in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 35, where he talks about heaven and earth passing away, but his words will never pass away. Right? Think about this. I mean, over 2,000 years ago, we're still quoting him, and not just his closest followers. Right? Even, even the secular world quotes passages from, from this section. They're familiar with this. Right? Even things that are very popular for a time typically phase out and age out. Right? I'm starting to, to see my age more and more. Uh, I, I first saw it when I went to Trinity and I was teaching in the classroom, and I would make movie references or quote things, and they're like, what are you talking about, right? And I'm like, have you not seen this movie? You're like, how do you not know what I'm talking about? And they're like, dude, you're old, right? <laughs> now I'm starting to see it with the teachers that I hire, right? Like, we're sitting in the workroom and break room and chatting and talking, and I'm trying to make a joke about a movie and quoting something, and they're looking at me like, what, what are you talking about, right? Um, movies and quotes and things that we feel like should be very popular, right? Start to phase out over time, right? They start to phase out over time. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about the words of Jesus, right? And he promised us, these aren't going to pass away. These aren't going to fade away, right? And it's, an, it's incredible to think about how even in the lost world, they remain very quotable. They remain very familiar, right? I can't quote anything from any other religion, uh, any other holy book, right? I don't know any of those passages, right? You ask me to quote from the Book of Mormon or, or any of their other sacred writings, I'd be lost, right? Even the lost world knows the words of Jesus. And we're going to see that from this, from this section, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is going to be a lot of familiar stuff to us, right? But I'm hoping that it becomes uh, convicting and encouraging in new and fresh ways as we connect it to what we've already been learning through the Minor Prophets. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount teaches what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. There's going to be some references here about, about entering into the kingdom of heaven, entering into God's kingdom, um, but it really debunks what was kind of being uh, uh, widely accepted in the Jewish culture that, that the kingdom was primarily physical and primarily uh, uh, military-based and materialistic, right? Like this big expectation for the kingdom to be the, uh, the tearing down of Rome, right, and the establishment of the physical Messiah on the throne in Jerusalem, What Jesus comes showing is that his kingdom is far different than that. It's far more spiritual in its initial understandings, right? We we look for and long for the day where he rules and reigns on this earth, but he establishes a spiritual rule here, right? And so he begins to talk about what it looks like for Jesus to rule and reign in the hearts of his people. Um, He addresses the superficiality of following him. Uh, He's concerned about the inward heart as much as the outward action. I'm excited to hear uh, Adam and Tyson and Marcus teach through Matthew chapter 6 because there's a lot of uh, uh, superficialness there in that chapter when it comes to uh, the ways that we give, the ways that we pray, the ways that we fast, right? This outward show sometimes where we want people to see our righteousness, see our holiness, right? And so we want to, to show uh, who we are and show our faithfulness and be honored for that. Um, Jesus, Jesus is going to tear that down. He's going to tear down Uh, that notion in his followers. Um, He seeks to address the artificial, the external righteousness of law-keeping and shows that it's not sufficient. Um, A key verse to maybe understanding a lot of what's going on here is further down in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? The, The perspective that the best of the best for them, and I've told you this before, like it's hard for us to read this and, and not uh, see it through their lens because at their time, Pharisees and scribes weren't uh, viewed in the negative connotation as they are today, 
right? Like Jesus kind of set the, reset the, the ways that we view those people with his teachings. And so we come after that. But before that, I mean, you would have been listening to Jesus's teachings thinking, oh yeah, like scribes, Pharisees, like these are the guys that, that, that are doing this. And then Jesus kind of trumps that and says, no, nah, it's got to be way more than what they're showing you. It's got to be way better than that if we're going to think in terms of what it looks like to be perfect in the eyes of God. And, and there's some tension from some uh, scholars here as to, as to what's, what's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people believe that this is uh, a standard of conduct that was to be uh, lived out if Jesus did make it to the throne uh, and, that, and that Israel's rejection uh, changed his plans and so he doesn't go to the throne now. And so this, this way of conduct and living is for the future, maybe during the millennial reign. Uh, others believe that Jesus is trying to set a standard here that, that we can't meet to help us better understand the gospel, which is certainly true, uh, but I think we miss the point if we just minimize it to, here's some things that it looks like to, to be perfect, and we can't be this, and so if we're not careful, we would say, well, we don't have to do any of this, right? Like, I think there's a, a merging of those two ideas here that this is what it looks like to be righteous in the eyes of God, but this is also the way that God calls us to live once we're saved, Meaning, we can't be saved by doing these things, but once we're saved, we're supposed to live these things out, right? Um, it's, it's giving us a foundational understanding of what it means to love God and to love others. I do believe it's describing an impossible way to live without the Holy Spirit, right? You, you can't live this way without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But I do believe also it's describing an expected way of living once you have the Holy Spirit, Meaning, if you're a Christian, live like this versus live like this to become a Christian, right? And, and there's, there's a difference there, right? We don't, we don't do these things or live this way to be commended for God, to be forgiven in his eyes. But we do live this way once we've been forgiven, once we've been accepted by him. This is how we start to live our life. There's at least 50 imperative commands uh, given here in the Sermon on the Mount. And I do believe he expects us to live this way. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. We'll start in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. I think Paul's saying in this passage that Jesus died so that we can live this way, right? He died because we don't live this way, right? He died to, to set us free, to redeem us from our lawless living, whether it was blatantly obvious, like our actions outwardly and our heart was all jacked up, or for those people who try to conform to a religious standard outwardly but still fall well short inwardly, right? Jesus died to redeem us from that lawlessness so that he could purify himself a people who are zealous for good works, who are passionate for living out his commands. And we see these great commands given to us in the Sermon on the Mount. If we do these things, we're not accepted by God, but we do them if we've been accepted by God. And it's a picture of what it looks like to be a Christian. Uh, these attitudes, these actions that we're going to see, they are descriptive of what it means to follow Jesus appropriately, I believe. Um, and great blessings come from them as well, right? Like So here at the beginning of chapter 5, these beatitudes, we see that if we choose to do certain things, if we choose to live certain ways, if we choose to think certain things, it leads to great blessings um, for those who structure and, and, and set their lives around this framework of living. Um, it also portrays for us a reversal of fortune in the future. Right? And Luke does a, a good job of showing some of these similar teachings in his gospel where basically live this way now and it looks differently in the future for you. Right? Be poor now, be hungry now, be persecuted now. It's different in the future. He says if you're filled now in, in Luke, right? um, if you're not mourning now, those things will come in the future for you. Your, your, your fortune will be reversed in the future. Right? And so we see... Maybe some difficulty in how we live some of these things out now, but we see great promises to come in the future where the poor, the grieved, the lowly, the hungry, the mistreated, they all find a different experience in the future.
All right, let's jump right in and see specifically what God's trying to teach us today. Number one, we want to walk humbly by recognizing our daily gospel needs. Walk humbly by recognizing your daily gospel needs. We've talked before, we don't, we don't graduate from our need for the gospel, right? It's not get saved, understand the gospel, and then we move beyond that. The, to really accept the gospel means we're constantly coming back to it on a daily basis, that we need God, we need his forgiveness, we need Christ's righteousness, that we don't ever graduate from that. And so we walk humbly, recognizing our daily need for this. Jesus gets on the mountain, he opens his mouth, he begins to teach them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea of spiritual poverty, right? Number one, I must recognize that I possess nothing of spiritual value myself. All commentators seem to agree that the concept of being poor in spirit is best understood or defined as spiritual bankruptcy that it's coming to the realization that everything about you prior to coming to Christ has, has, has zero value in, in making you acceptable before God, right? That there's nothing that we possess in and of ourselves that can, that can earn God's favor. Um, nothing about me can, can commend me to God. Not my family ties, right? Uh, not the fact that I come from a Christian family, it's a big deal for the Jewish people to think that because they were uh, in covenant relationship with God as a nation, that that exempted them from uh, thinking outside the box about their sin and thinking about how they were accountable to God uh, for their actions, that they were very, um, very bought into the fact that because I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm good. Because I'm an Israelite, I'm okay. Our earthly performances don't commend us before God, right? Our attempts to be good, and we certainly see that in in Paul's attitude when he talks about, look, if anybody could be acceptable to God by their actions or by their family ties or by who they are, it would be me, right? And he says, I've had to count all of that as loss to know Christ, right? Poor in spirit has to do with the idea of seeing yourself spiritually bankrupt. Now, it's different than a false humility, Right, because we've all known those people who, who uh, kind of downplay themselves in a way where it, it it reeks of like somebody who wants to be all these things, right? Like a false humility where you know somebody might say like I'm not worth anything or I can't do anything right, and and really devalues themselves in such a way where borderline like they're they're failing to see themselves as being valuable by being an image bearer of God. Right? And so that false humility of just like really downplaying yourself is not what's being talked about here. Instead, it's more of an honest assessment of who you are. We see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It says in uh, Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's being honest with yourself about who you are as an image bearer of God and the role that you play, but seeing his glory, his, uh, his goodness, his righteousness, and knowing that we fail to, to live up to that standard, right? So being poor in spirit is an acknowledgement that uh, we, don't, we don't have anything that makes us acceptable before God. Jesus says, blessed are those people. Blessed are those people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? And there's that initial recognition when we come to Christ, we recognize these things about ourselves. But then as a Christian, there's this daily ongoing fight to keep coming back to those truths. Right? That we don't ever become commendable in God's eyes because of who we are, because of our efforts or anything like that. Number two, I must grieve over my ongoing sin and be discontent with it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I must grieve over my ongoing sin and be discontent with it. Those who mourn are those who rightly see their ongoing need for God's grace and mercy and recognize they can't trust their own righteousness for salvation. Now, I think the, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke is a great picture of both poor in spirit and those who mourn. And we see a perf- an appropriate uh, picture of what this looks like. It says in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
right? So that's, that's part of what he's trying to address in Matthew chapter 5, right? The, the idea that, that we would be righteous or, or, or good in God's eyes, the ways that we treat others. And so Jesus says, I tell, I'm telling this parable, uh, particularly to those who think that they're righteous and treat others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To be one who mourns appropriately is to be one who sees the, the sin the way God sees it and seeks to treat it the way that God treats it. Rather than trying to cover it up or defend it, right? we recognize it, we see it, we expose it, and we seek to deal with it the way that God deals with it. Right? I, I see this play out in times when I'm interacting with kids at Trinity where we're having to address sinful choices and decisions they make. Uh, way more often than not, um, kids come into my office and try to defend uh, their actions, try to cover up their actions, try to justify themselves and uh, minimize the, the wrongfulness of their actions. I had two kids uh, in my office this week. Um, kid came in, very confidently told me a story. This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened, right? And I don't know why I did it this way because I've, I've been doing this for 10 years now. Like, I don't, I don't need to fault into the trap of just believing the first kid at his word, right? But when he told me this, like Ryan, uh, who's preached here before, he's our dean of students. I said, look, other kid, we're suspending him. We're doing this. We're doing this. We're doing this, right? Like, like pretty much like we're done, but let's hear, let's hear the other kid, right? So we bring the other kid in there. He's like, well, here's what happened, right? Da, 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 da. And I look at the other kid and I'm like, is this what happened? And he was like, maybe. And I was like, maybe? What? Right? Like the kid had done a great job of defending himself and minimizing the actions that he might have contributed, maximizing the guilt of the other, right? To be one who mourns appropriately, to experience the comfort that Jesus promises. It's one who comes forthright and says, Here, here's my involvement, here's my action, like here's who I am, right? And I'm grieved over my sin. I'm grieved over my action. I'm grieved over my uh, failure. But not only personally, I think that, that we're also called to grieve over ongoing sin in this world, right? The injustices that we see, the indifferences that we see. We see this in uh, Psalm chapter 119, People who are poor in spirit, people who are mourning in such a way that God's going to comfort them, are people who are grieved over sin that pervades this world. Psalm 119, verse 136. Here the psalmist says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, that's where Paul talks about his his grieving heart for his countrymen, his kinsmen who won't accept Christ, right? Like he's grieved over the lack of salvation of Israel, right? He's grieved, his heart is torn over it. But look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. This is where I think as we, as we come to the gospel, we get saved and we mature more and more. We continue to mourn over our own sin, but the sins of others become not a source for us to be able to judge them, but it becomes almost a source of mourning for us as well as we long for them to be set free. Look what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we'll start in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Right? Paul says, I'm grieved over this church at Corinth. Because they're living in such a way that's inconsistent with what Jesus has called us to. 
right? They're not repenting of this. They're not changing from this. They don't seem to be growing away from this. They seem mired in it, and he's grieved over it. He's mourning over it, right? And, and you know, honestly, I think I'm doing a good job when I'm, when I'm grieved over my own sin. I think God still has a ton of work to do in me in that area, and I can certainly tell you he has a lot of work to still do in me when it comes to being grieved over the sins of others like I need to be, right? Most often I'm trying to, to make myself grieved over the sins of my own life and not becoming prideful and blinded to the things that are still there and, and being willing to overlook some of those things and to kind of lean on my own righteousness, right? Like God's still working on me there and still exposing my sin and helping me to see past my own pride, right? But I think what we're called to to go even the next step is to be willing to be grieved over the sins of others in our life, those who are battling sin because it motivates us to help spur them on. It motivates us to exhort them and to help them fight. I must grieve over my ongoing sin and be discontent with it. Number three, I must pursue obedience to him by submitting my desires to his. I must pursue obedience to him by submitting my desires to his. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be satisfied. This idea of the meek, um, it's a word that we don't use very often to describe somebody when we're trying to give them a compliment because I think it rhymes with weak in our language. And so sometimes we we falsely assume that they're very similar, right? Meek and weak. And, you know, why would anybody want to be described as somebody who is meek? Other passages of scripture where you see the concept of meek being applied, it's, it's oftentimes attached to uh, other words like humility and patience, right? Uh, one way that it's described, I think the original word had to do with uh, just the concept of like what a broken horse is, right? A powerful uh, beast, a powerful animal that can be harnessed and used when it's trained and when it's broken, right? You take that power and now it's power under control. And I think that's a, that's a good understanding of what meekness is. It's, it's power that's, that's harnessed and under control and being used for the purposes of someone else, right? Uh, I, think, I think obviously Jesus is the perfect example of what it means to be meek, and he describes himself that way. He describes himself as someone who is, who is gentle and patient and meek, right? Because he's submitted to what he describes as his father's will, his father's plans, right? What his father has told him to do. Moses is also one who is described as, as a meek individual, right? In Numbers chapter 12, this is when... Uh, Moses is undergoing criticism for his leadership and being attacked by his family. Look what it says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. It's, it's, it's one who, who is fully submitted to obedience and following after someone else. Uh, the humility and patience that that takes. Right? And we're called to be this. We're called to be individuals who are meek, people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This concept of, of what it looks like to do that, uh, where we're uh, craving and desiring and pursuing, we're promised that we can be satisfied. But this hunger and thirst for righteousness is a pursuit of lifelong obedience that flows from lifelong trust because it's not that we hunger and thirst for our own righteousness and so we're motivated to do more good works, do more good works, do more good works in a way where it's detached from faith because I think Paul's touching on this concept and I referenced it earlier uh, in Philippians chapter three. And we'll be looking at this chapter next uh, in our D groups. In Philippians chapter three, Verse four, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul doing here? He's differentiating what it looks like to be obedient outwardly, to conform to actions that you've been told to do, absent of faith, and then what it looks like to pursue these things with that attitude of faith, right? Where there's, there's buy-in and trust that what I'm being asked to do, I should absolutely submit to it because it's right and best. And not just doing it because this is the way I was raised or this is what I've been told and there's some type of punishment coming if I don't do it. Right? I, mean, I, don't know if you've, I don't know how many of you have seen The Karate Kid. Right? It'll be a movie that I can't reference maybe in a few years because it'll be so outdated. Right? But in that movie, The Karate Kid, right, Daniel LaRusso comes to Mr. Miyagi. He wants to learn how to fight because he's being bullied and beat up at school. Right? So he comes and, and seeks his guidance like, hey, teach me to do karate. Right? And those first lessons feel very unkarate like right? He's telling him to, uh, to wax his car and to paint his fence and to sand the floor, right? And, and Daniel's doing those things, but he's doing it from an outward conformity standpoint because Mr. Miyagi has to keep coming in and saying, like, do it this way because he just thinks, like, oh, I'm here to, like, do your chores, and then we'll get to the karate piece. And so his technique's off. He's, he's not doing it the right way, right? But then... Mr. Miyagi like pulls him up and says, let me show you what you've learned, right? And so then he goes through this little karate demonstration where all of the chores that he's been doing has been teaching him to block certain moves, certain karate maneuvers, right? There's a change in the movie at that point, right? Daniel's been like conforming to this stuff, but his attitude has kind of stunk about it, right? He's been complaining about it, not happy about it, not really sure of the purpose behind it. But their relationship changes when he, when he realizes oh, this guy's got my best interest at heart, right? Like this guy knows what he's talking about. And from then on, he's completely bought into everything that he's asked to do, but now he's putting his faith and trust in the fact that what you're asking me to do is going to lead to the desired results that I have, right? The Pharisees are conforming to these outward actions, right? But at the end of the day, once those things are done, they're kind of done too, right? It's why Jesus has to address their heart condition because their obedience isn't flowing from a heart of trust and buy-in to what's being asked. They're simply checking off a list and saying, okay, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. And Jesus says, no, your righteousness has to exceed these guys because all they're doing is the outward part. There is no buy-in and trust. <clears throat> right? there's, no, there's no submission. There's no faith here. Paul says, look, I count all this external stuff as loss. I want to know Christ. I don't want my righteousness. I want his righteousness, a righteousness that comes to me by me putting my faith and trust in him, right? It's, it's what we talked about, you know, even like last week, as, as trials and difficulties come our way, when we're bought in in faith to what we're being asked to do, we, we stick there in the batter's box when the curveball's coming and we don't bail out, right? We lean into it. Why? Because we believe and trust what is gonna happen next. We believe and trust in God's goodness. We believe and trust that he has good intent for us. We hunger and thirst for righteousness by seeking to be obedient to him from an attitude of trust, not just outward conformity. You'll remember in our study in John, Jesus promises that there's, there's by coming to him, we no longer hunger and thirst, right? right? He gives us that picture with the feeding of the 5,000. He gives us that picture with the woman at the well, right? He satisfies those longings by giving us that righteousness that we need. Number two, Show intentional kindness in your treatment of others. Show intentional kindness in your treatment of others. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In, in, in those three verses right there, what we're being called to is we're, calling, we're being called to be channels of God's mercy, his purity, and his peace when it comes to our interaction with others. Number one, I must treat others the way I've been treated. Not by them, but by God, right? The merciful are those who forgive others in response to the own forgiveness they've received. And this is, this is the piece that like, it has really just been challenging me from what we saw in the Minor Prophets. The, the idea of God being a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, who won't clear the guilty, who certainly adjusts God, but does it in a way where his mercy is able to shine through as well. 
and I, and I don't know if you're, if you're seeing this or not in your own practical life, but like for me, like I, I keep coming back to this on a daily basis because as I interact with people at my job, as I interact with my own wife and my own kids at home, right, I want to be a person who's known for showing mercy, right? Like as we read these things, as we read these Beatitudes, right, there's this, there's, there's this, uh, potential to focus on the blessing part of it. But what I really want you to hone in on is, are you known as this type of person? Are you known as somebody who's poor in spirit? Are you known as somebody who shows spiritual humility, even about your own spiritual accomplishments? Are you known as somebody who's grieved and and discontent with sin in your life? Are you known as a meek individual who is submitted to God's plan? Are you known as somebody who who never relies on their own righteousness, but is looking to the righteousness of Christ, who, who does things uh, that, that we're called to do with the right attitude, with the right heart, with an attitude of trust and faith? Are you known as somebody who is merciful? Are you known as somebody who's merciful? I hope so, because that's the type of person that receives mercy. The merciful are those who forgive others in response to the own forgiveness they've received. Number two, I must be genuine in my motives towards others. It talks about the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are those individuals whose motives are right, who treat others honestly and fairly and without a desire for personal gain. Right? There's no deception there in the ways that we interact with others, and that certainly ties in with what we saw in the Minor Prophets. Right? You saw individuals who were using other people for personal gain, who weren't pure of heart, who had ulterior motives. Right? He challenges us to be people who are known as being people of pure of heart. One of the commentators that I was reading asked the question, to what extent, if any, do your actions and words constitute a cover-up for what's truly in your heart? Man, do, do what people experience from you truly reflect what's going on in your heart? Because we can, we can try to outwardly conform to some standard and be completely wrecked on the inside with our perspectives. What we're being challenged to here is to be pure of heart, meaning that like it starts in our heart and then flows outwardly in the ways that we treat others. First John chapter three talks about this desire for purity and how we pursue it now in anticipation of it being fully granted to us in the future, right? First John chapter three, verse two, beloved, we are God's children now and what, it, uh, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Right? We, we pursue this type of purity now, knowing that when he comes, it'll be granted to us. Number three, I must help others see each other. This concept of being a peacemaker, I told one of my one of the guys that works with me this week, I said, man, I feel like a good portion of my job is just helping people see each other. I said, I feel like I am constantly in this, in this situation where I'm trying to help students see their teachers and teachers see their students, right? Like, I feel like I'm this, this bridge to where I'm trying to help each other see each other's perspective. Um, I feel like I have to do that with teacher to teacher a lot of times. I feel like I have to do that with teacher to parent a lot of times, Right? Um, but the idea of being a peacemaker is one who creates peaceful environments between themselves and others, right? So it starts, for me to be a true peacemaker, I have to maintain peace between myself and other people. And we've seen, we we saw this in the Minor Prophets where uh, if I've done something wrong to somebody else, it's my job to go get it fixed. And if somebody else has done something wrong to me, it's my job to go get it fixed, right? The burden for peacemaking when it relates to me is always on me. I'm the one that's always supposed to get it right. If I'm aware of something, I'm supposed to go make it right, um, whether I'm one at fault or not. But it doesn't stop there, right? Just like it doesn't stop there with us mourning over our own sin, but being grieved over the sins of others, I don't get to just go to sleep at night saying, I think I'm at peace with everybody. I don't think there's anybody that's mad at me and I'm not mad at anybody else, so you know, I'm done for tonight. The idea of being a peacemaker is one who can also help bridge the gap for other people, right? Um, it's between ourselves and others, between others and others, and then ultimately a peacemaker is one who can help bring God and man together through the gospel. 
right? That ultimate peace, not just the, the casual, physical, daily peace of learning how to work together and learning how to serve each other, but the ultimate eternal peace is certainly a part of being a peacemaker as well. One who, who is actively seeking to bring man to God, right? And to, to reconcile what's gone wrong there. So let me ask you this question. Are you known as one who lessens tensions, who seeks solutions, and ensures communication is understood? Are you the type of person who, who creates peace in the environments that God places you? Are you one who seeks to pursue it, not just for yourself, but even when it involves other people? Are you one that, that people will come get and say, hey, can you help mediate this? Can you help, can you help create peace in this situation? We ought to see ourselves that way. We ought to see ourselves as one who, who brings peace to situations. It says we'll be called sons of God. Um, and, and what that phrase means is that it means that we are an accurate image and reflection of who God is, right? That, that we are imaging him well. We're, we're like him as a son, right? When, when people see Apollos, uh, people haven't seen him a whole lot with the whole quarantining time. So like whenever he's kind of showed back up at Trinity um, and people started seeing him, they're like, well, you know who his dad is, right? Like everybody sees him and says, man, that's Adam's son. Like he looks just like you kind of a thing, right? That, that's what is meant here, right? When, when we're a peacemaker, people say, Wait, that, that, that's like God, right? Like we're identified as a son of God because we look like him when we're acting this way. The flip side would be we're not like God when we bring tension into our environments, right? When we create the issues, whether it's through gossip or slander or uh, backbiting and, and anger, right? Like we're, we're not contributing to the peace there. But when we do, we're seen as a son of God. Number three, do right and correct wrongs even when it's costly. So we've seen that humility aspect that Micah calls us to, to walk humbly. We've seen the picture of what it looks like to show kindness where we're people who show mercy because we've been shown mercy, right? Like we're, we're simply being a channel of what God has already given to us. And we know that we didn't deserve it. Uh, because we're the, the, we're the poor in spirit, we're the one who's mourning and the hungering of, and thirsting for righteousness. So, so when we get God's mercy, we don't think we've earned it, right? Like we know like, man, I'm receiving this and I certainly didn't deserve it. And so then when we interact with others, we can extend it specifically when people don't deserve it, right? Sometimes when I'm trying to, to help our teacher maybe see that um, some grace and mercy needs to be extended towards this student, and I know some things that are playing out in this student's life. Um, sometimes, like, the response is, well, this kid doesn't deserve this. Like, I've already done so much for him, right? And it's like, yeah, if he did deserve it, we would be calling it grace and mercy right now. <laughs> We'd be calling it some type of reward or, or some type of payment that you owe him, right? The fact that we're calling it grace and mercy identifies the fact that I'm asking you to treat and interact with this kid in a way that they do not deserve. They've done nothing to deserve this. They've done the exact opposite, right? That they should be treated differently than what I'm asking you. And I believe that we can call people to that and we can, we can be an example of that because when we really buy into the fact that God is treating me in a way that I don't deserve, right? And, and, and what, we're, what we're tempted to do in our spiritual pride is to think, well, God should do good things to me because I do, I do good things. Right? Like God should show me the things that he shows me because I've earned those things. Right? And what we've got to see is that all these promises that we bank our lives on, we don't deserve any of them. Right? Like, like nothing that God is giving us is something that we've earned. And, and when we really realize that, it allows us to, to change the way that we interact with other people by being people who show mercy, who are pure in heart, and seek to make peace. But then the challenge is, is that we're told now that when we do all these things, here's what will happen to us. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who, persecute, who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Two references here to the persecuted being blessed, right? The, the, the first verse, verse 10, kind of follows with the same 
format of the previous Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted. Then specifically in verse 11, he changes it to a more personal pronoun of blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. The persecutor are those who experience kickback for pattering their life after God's word and the commands of Jesus. So there's two things that I think that are going on here. Number one, I must be known as someone who does right. I must be known as someone who does right. Because the idea here in verse 10 is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing the right thing. Now, lest we, we, we feel bad about our lack of persecution in comparison to other believers around the world, I think Jesus quantifies what does it mean to be persecuted by really making it at its simplest form. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, right? It may not be physical in nature that the persecution comes. And, and most, most all of us here in this room have never experienced physical persecution. But what he does say is that even like the words that are hurled at you can be categorized this way. You're being persecuted. You're being mistreated. You're receiving kickback because you're seeking to do the right thing. You're seeking to identify with me is what he says in verse 11 on my account. My mistreatment doesn't come from doing wrong, but for doing right in the face of wrong, right? First Peter chapter three and first Peter chapter four are both passages of scripture that talk about Right, the persecution that comes from doing the right thing. We don't want to be in the category of people who, who are mistreated and dealt with unkindly because of wrong things that we do. Right? Instead, we want to be in the group of people who are doing the right thing in the face of wrong, and then we receive the kickback. But what's being said here is that my decision to live a godly life will inevitably lead to kickback. Now, we don't go seeking it, but we expect it. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Second Timothy 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should expect it. If the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution, it may be fairly asked, where is the righteousness being displayed in his life? We're known as people who do right. Number two, we're known as people who address wrong. The mistreatment, particularly here, and we're going to wrap up with this. It comes from identifying with Christ. That's where some of the tension really comes from. And the question might be asked, well, well why? Philippians 1.29 talks about us being destined for this. Acts 5.41 talks about the early disciples counting it a privilege to be suffering for Christ. Why do we suffer, though, for identifying with Christ? It's because of what 1 John 3, 8 through 9 says. It says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Right? So, so again, here's where it goes a bit further than us just being content to pattern our life after righteousness. Because that may bring kickback in and of itself. We try to do the right thing. We're in the midst of people who feel guilty and convicted now because they, we're doing the right thing and they're not. Even further kickback, I think, comes when we try to live out what Jesus has called us to and we identify with him because Jesus was not content to leave sin in the life of others undealt with. Right? And so we will certainly experience kickback when we confront others right, with the gospel and their need for repentance and salvation right? because that is... That is not what their heart desires. Until the Holy Spirit changes their heart, that is not what they desire, right? And so what happens here is that when we press in as Jesus would call us to, it creates tension and it will create kickback because if we are living out Jesus' plan to destroy the works of the devil, we are called to address sin and to seek to be a peacemaker, right? And Jesus says, look, blessed are you if that happens. Don't be discouraged by it. Rejoice over it. Be glad in it. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. Luke chapter 6. This is the kind of the parallel teaching over in Luke's gospel. Look what Luke chapter 6 says. Verse 26. It says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
Remember we talked about some of the, the false prophets in the minor prophets that were basically telling the people exactly what they wanted to hear and everybody liked them? He says, you should probably pause and, and stop and think, if everybody in your life likes you, uh, you're probably doing something wrong. And that, that's certainly contrary to how we want to, to feel a lot of times, right? Like, I'm the type of person, I really want everybody to like me. And I really want everybody to be good with me. And I don't want people to be angry at me or mad at me or, or hurt by me. And for the most part, that's a right and good feeling to have. But Jesus also says, woe to you if everybody likes you. Right? Because there's, there's an appropriate time for people to not be liking you. Right? Because they're rejecting the truth just like they rejected Jesus in history. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she inevitably attracts it to either be like it or to persecute it. When the church is absolutely different from the world, two things are going to happen. It's either going to attract the world. When the church is different than the world, it'll either attract the world to be like it or it'll attract the world to persecute it. Today we're seeing the persecution side of things. Next week we'll see the side where we attract it with our salt and our light, right? And we make a difference in it, all right? Two things I want to close with, reasons to press forward with living life this way. Jesus kind of closes it out here in Matthew chapter 5 with this attitude as well. Right? He says, rejoice and be glad. Blessed are you if you live this way. And hey, if you live this way, you're going to be persecuted for it. You're going to be getting kicked back for it. People are going to hate you for it potentially. Why should I press on with this then? Number one, the promises of blessings are coming, just not fully in this world. Right? We press on to live life this way and endure the kickback and persecution that might come from living this way because we are promised that blessing is coming. And we'll experience some of these blessings here in this, earth, in, in, in this life, on this, on this world, but most of this is to be uh, enjoyed in the future. And then number two, to be reminded of the fact that we are in good company with the prophets. Right? He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And then secondly, don't be discouraged because they persecuted the prophets this way too. And again, I felt like it was appropriate for us to look at this sermon because we're trying to live out the prophet's message from the minor prophets. And if we're going to do that effectively, we need to be prepared to be mistreated for it. But to stay encouraged in the midst of that because they persecuted the prophets too. I'm going to ask Tyson to come. We're going to close our service out just a little bit differently today. Instead of having our application group questions. I want to just give us a time to, to prayerfully uh, respond. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of walk us through some points of prayer. I want you to pray kind of on your own as I'm talking through some of this, and then we're going to close uh, with a song today. Let me start by just challenging you to um, prayerfully reflect upon what God has done in your life. Um, you know, we talked about being poor in spirit and mourning and hungry and thirsting after righteousness to just invite you to, for just a moment, to, to thank God for what he's done in your life through the gospel, um, how he has treated you far differently than you deserve, um, to, to rejoice in his goodness and his forgiveness and his continued work in, in your life as he's conforming you to the image of his son, to just celebrate that for a moment. as you're reflecting on the grace and mercy that God has shown you to, to also consider your ways and to examine, are you showing that same level of mercy to those around you? Are you being merciful? Are you being a peacemaker? Are you known for those things in your home? Are you known for those things at your job? Are there people that you haven't shown mercy to in your life that you know you need to now? Is there a lack of peace in your area of contact that you need to pursue peace as we leave today? Do you need to be the peacemaker for people in your life that are at odds with each other right now? And then lastly, think about 
what it looks like to, to be known for righteousness, but to also be known for righteousness on the account of Jesus. Because there's a lot of people that are known for um, doing good things, and it doesn't create any type of kickback. It's really that attachment to on account of Christ where we're not content to just let people believe the way they want to believe and do what they want to do, that as a peacemaker, we want to bring them to God, and, and that at times is going to create kickback. And um, There's a lot of people who claim to, to be a follower of Jesus and don't have the righteousness part and lose all hope of their testimony as well. And so just pause and make sure that as you're living out your life, you're seeking to do it in obedience to him, but you're also willing to do it in such a way that might warrant the kickback from those who would reject it. Tyson's going to lead us in song as we continue to reflect. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.